Welcome to the Brave Feminine Leadership Interviews, where I get to dig into delicious conversations with global leaders. I get to ask about women in leadership. I get to hear their stories, soak up their wisdom and their perspective on life and leadership. And today I'm super excited to welcome Dr. John Izzo to the conversation. Fantastic to have you with me, John. Thank you, Melissa. Great to be here. Looking forward to a delicious conversation. Who doesn't want to have a delicious conversation? Exactly. <laughs> so let me just touch on your bio so that people have an understanding of, um, of who you are. So Dr. Johnny Zoe has been a leading voice on leadership and purpose-focused businesses for four decades. He's the best-selling author of nine books, including Stepping Up and The Purpose Revolution. Over the last 30 years, he's advised over 800 global companies, you've been very busy, and personally spoken to over 1 million people as a keynote speaker. He is the co-founder of Blueprint at the University of British Columbia, dedicated to enhancing the integrity and well-being of men and boys for the benefit of communities. John, I can't wait to get into our conversation, and, and I know we will touch on Blueprint, um, I just would love to ask you, for people in our audience who haven't had the pleasure of coming across you before, would you take some time just to share with us, who are you as a human being? Well, thank you. And uh, I was thinking as I was thinking about this question, uh, you know, how in a very short time do you summarize uh, 65 years of, of living? And I think it's always easiest to start where one is right now, which is, you know, I spend about half of my time advising and speaking to large companies and leadership groups about creating highly engaged, purpose-driven cultures that can do good and do well. And that has kind of been my, for lack of a better way to put it, my brand for the last 30 plus years is that I really was a pioneer in the early 1990s of this idea that doing good was also good business, that if you could create a workplace that ennobled the human soul, that would bring uh, all of a person's creativity and energy to the workplace, that it was simply good business. And so I, I do that and have been doing that for 30 years. The second thing, as you said, is I co-founded at the University of British Columbia Blueprint uh, where I had about half of my time dedicated to really helping men and boys uh, be better on every team they're on, including their own, uh, and uh, a belief strongly, and we'll get into it today, that if we can work with the masculine, and here I don't just mean men, but with the masculine energy that has dominated uh, business and Western society, that if we can work with that, uh, and reimagine it that it will have profound consequences on the society. But how did I get here? So now let's go back to I was born in a log cabin. No, not really. <laughs> I grew up in New York City. And of course, you know, I was born in a log cabin uh, in a very religious home. Uh, uh, and fortunately for me, it was not uh, a Helen Brimstone uh, Christian upbringing, but rather I felt an incredibly invitational brand of Christianity that I grew up with, uh, which was an invitation to be in the world in a certain way. So I grew up listening to sermons as a young man about, you know, he who wants to and she who wants to be the greatest must be the servant of all and pick up your cross and follow me. Uh, you've heard an eye for an eye, uh, but I say to you, turn the other cheek. 
And I grew up with sermons about the Vietnam War and the civil rights movement and nuclear disarmament. So perhaps because of that, I was always really a do-gooder. You know, uh, everything I considered doing with my life was uh, either going into politics to try to make the world a better place, to go into journalism, to write about what was working or what wasn't working, or to go into the ministry because I had this great, um, you know, image of the church as a place of great invitation. Long story short, I wound up choosing to uh, go into the Presbyterian ministry, spent uh, seven years in the parish ministry, and uh, eventually went back and got a PhD in organizational psychology. And the long and short of it is I married my three careers. Uh, I preach about 90 times a year about things that matter to me. Uh, I am involved in issues of our time uh, that I care about, like war and peace and uh, social justice and environment and the role of business. Uh, and all of my books have been journalistic enterprises, mostly writing about what's working. And maybe I just end by saying, I think you can often understand a person by understanding their purpose. And my day-to-day -day purpose is to spread uh, more kindness, compassion, and intentionality in every interaction. And my work purpose is to help accelerate the shift of consciousness required for humanity and planet to thrive now and in the future. So that's kind of who I am and how I wound up doing what I've been doing for 40 years. Fantastic. John, I want to go back to one of those purposes you brought up because it's a question that I'm really fascinated by. It's intentionality. And, you know, I would love your reflections on was there a moment in your career where, you know, you you became a lot more intentional around the sort of direction you took? Um, maybe we'll start there first. You know, it's interesting. I don't think it was in the workplace that I first saw the importance of intentionality. I grew up in a single parent home in, in, in New York City. My uh, a father and mother got married very young and split up when I was only six months old. My father moved two hours away uh, to in uh, Connecticut uh, and then died of a heart attack at 36 when I was eight years old. And I had not met him once in those eight years after they split up. And even though I probably didn't know it at the time, Melissa, that um, two things happened for me, I think, as a young man. The first thing is that uh, I knew that life is short. I mean, when your father dies at 36 and you're eight years old, I think I had a heightened sense that the choices that I made mattered that you didn't know how much time you would have to leave whatever legacy you were going to leave. And the second thing is that I'd like to believe if my father had lived longer, that I would have had a relationship with him. So I was acutely aware of his lack of intention for whatever reason. It's a bit of a mystery to me why he made the choices he made. So I think even more than in leadership, I think as a very young man, I got very focused on being intentional about my own choices but also trying to influence that others would perhaps not make some of the mistakes that I saw people in my life make as a young man. So I think actually it started very young and probably no surprise that I wound up focusing on that in my life. I remember you sharing with me a story that led you from the ministry into the world of business. Um, and, and that was quite impactful for me. Would you share that story? 
Yeah, I'd like to think I'm an accidental tourist into the uh, into the business world because I honestly, growing up, it never occurred to me. No one in my family, and my mother worked in accounting firm, but nobody had been really a entrepreneur focused on business. But when I was a young minister in Youngstown, Ohio, it was during the days when the uh, steel mills were closing down. They called it the Rust Bowl at the time. And I had a uh, uh, an elder in our church named Hollis Hall, who was probably in his mid-50s at the time. I was only in my mid-20s. And, uh, and he was one of those people, Melissa, that you knew at one time, this guy was a bright spirit. You could see that at one time he was just a fully alive human. And yet something had died in Hollis. Whatever sparkle there was in his eye had somehow been extinguished. And it took me a while getting to know him that it was not in his life outside of work, but it was his life inside of work. The way he had been treated and the experience he had had at work, the way he had felt diminished and and not respected, that that was what had really extinguished this bright light in this human and even as a young minister, I got intrigued. Is that the way business has to be? Or could business be a place that actually inspired and made people better humans? And that is probably what uh, drove me back to get that PhD in organizational psychology and eventually get a great fascination. I like to say a fire in the belly for the impact work had on people's lives. And that was really what got me into the world of business was that experience with Hollis. So, you know, that leads me to, you know, we. I want to talk about joy in leadership. You know, I think leadership can be really challenging. And I think if we look at the, you know, broader economic sort of climate right now, it is challenging. It is challenging for a lot of leaders as well through that place. How can you bring or find joy in leadership? How do you respond to that? Because it feels like that's the opposite experience of um, the gentleman you were just talking about. Yeah. Well, well, first, I think all of us are most joyful when we are being the most authentic and true to ourselves. So for leaders, that first of all means that uh, we take the time to think about what our purpose is and why we're actually getting up in the morning and what gives us meaning and and making sure that we're aligning our leadership and our organizations that we are leading, whether they're teams or entire organizations, to align around the things that we are incredibly passionate about. That's the first thing. Uh, obviously, the second thing uh, is that most of us have never been trained on being happy, staying optimistic. Uh, staying resilient. And I spend uh, a lot of my time training leaders and coaching them to really learn the science of staying happy and resilient and optimistic. And fortunately, over the last several decades, we now have science behind what spiritual traditions have told us for years made you happy. Things like gratitude, yes. uh, things like giving rather than taking, things like movement and meditation. So I think, one, we have to cultivate a an inner life that keeps us optimistic, joyful, and happy. And second, we have to make sure we are being our most authentic, true selves. And it's very easy as a leader to wind up uh, living the organization's life, the society's life, uh, rather than the life that is truly your own. So I think uh, those two things are critical, I think, for uh 
continuing to cultivate joy in our personal lives as well as for us as leaders. Mm, okay. So let's talk about women in leadership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you as you talked then about the gentleman in the steel mill and, you know, over time how he had felt less valued and things like that, you know, I hear those stories a lot from women today, even though, you know, we're seeing some wonderful news around some incredible female CEOs appointed recently, particularly in our market here in Australia, it's still stubbornly slow, the progress for women in leadership. And the stories I hear are stories of, um, you know, not being listened to, um, you know, sort of having trouble getting their voice heard in situations and things like that. I'd love to go into that space with you and just talk broadly about your perceptions about why there are not more female CEOs. Yeah, and first of all, uh, hello to Australia. I spent a lot of time down there because uh, Qantas Airlines put uh, 20,000 people through several versions of our Stepping Up program based on my book, Stepping Up. And I started back in Canada asking people how they were going when they arrived at my house and those who hadn't been in Australia said, look, I just arrived. Why do you want to know, you know, how I'm going? Uh, So I had to be careful. We don't say that here, uh, but I love it. So first, let me um, say, uh, answer the the first question you asked or the second question you asked. I think there aren't more female leaders for uh, uh, several reasons. First, just the inherent bias, I think, that has existed that is perhaps mostly unconscious, but somewhat conscious, that somehow uh, senior leaders were mostly men. I think we all get a paradigm in our mind, you know, about what something looks like, you know, what a firefighter looks like, a police officer, what a nurse looks like, right? Same reason that you know, a lot of female male nurses have a hard time because we had an image for decades. So first, the image itself and the unconscious bias that exists, and then sometimes outwardly biased. The second thing is almost always when you become a CEO, you become a CEO because you were a vice president or on the senior team. So it's almost uh, like I think it has taken a long time to build the farm team which is women have, you know, needed to be in greater numbers in first the middle ranks, then the senior team, and still today a dearth even at the senior levels. So I think it's a matter of time as well uh, for that to happen. Of course, many organizations have been much more intentional about it. But the third thing that's more insidious in my mind is the fact that the masculine patriarchal paradigm which has dominated business and society, especially in the West, but to some extent across the globe in in modern urban society, uh, it tends to favor the traditional masculine energies. And I say that because these things are not exclusive to men or women. They are associated with men or associated with the feminine, but they're actually different energies. So the male energy of- Elaborate on those, yeah. Yeah, so the male energy, power, status, competition, things over relationship, uh, you know, uh, et cetera, right? Uh, Conquering over nurturing. Then the more feminine energy, nurturing, compassion, relationships, more holistic, less focused, you know, uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So the business world has, and the organizational world and society, even in terms of elected officials, have tended to think leadership is about these 
masculine energies, and it's caused incredible problems for societies and organizations, and I want to get into that. But because that has been what we saw as good leadership, mm-hmm. these more uh, associated with the feminine qualities have been diminished. And so a great example of that, Melissa, is like a male. if a male leader cries occasionally, not often, it's like, oh, isn't he a real human? If a woman leader does it, isn't she weak? Yes. And so it's a simple example. If a woman leader raises the issue of, well, what's the relationship impact of that? Well, that's women always thinking about that, right? So there's a certain typecasting of women when they are really leading uh, from the feminine. And obviously, the most effective leaders actually integrate the feminine and the masculine energy, and we can get into that. But I think that's the three reasons why um, I think that we don't have as many as we ought to not only ought to in a moral sense, but ought to for effectiveness as well. It's interesting. I know you shared with me some research that indicated, um, and, and talking to the fact that there's been these sort of archetypes of leadership that, that rely more heavily on masculine leadership traits, that as women moved into more senior roles, they too exhibited and lent on their masculine tendencies a lot more. I, um, you know, I... Does command and control leadership, I mean, does that is that masculine? Um, because I have in conversations with people, I hear a lot of people say to me, I'm so I'm stuck in command and control. How do I shift? Because that's not resonating anymore. Yeah. Well, this is a really big, like now we're opening up the onion, which is good. So, so a couple of thoughts. Uh, one is that. I think the most, let's first look at the research on effective leadership. We know that effective, truly effective leaders actually, even though it's not named that way, integrate the masculine and the feminine energies. And I'll give you a great example of that for for me in a moment. Uh, uh, But you are right that some research suggests that as uh, women leaders climb up the ranks, they lead more like the traditional masculine energies. Now, there's two theories for that. One would be, well, that's the way you have to lead if you're an effective CEO. Well, let's say ah, to that one because yep. research doesn't support that. Second, it's because that's what the system rewards. So women who lead like that masculine energy are more likely to be promoted. Probably some truth. I think equally so that as women climb up the ladder in leadership, they often feel they have to fit into that masculine paradigm. But let's talk about why the two energies together are the most effective form of leadership. And I like to think the best leader I ever worked for was my first leader in organization development, a woman leader named Trudy Sop. And Trudy Sop, though at the time I wouldn't have thought of it in these terms, integrated the masculine and the feminine energies. She had no problem with power and influence. Uh, She could wield it with the best of them. She had super high expectations and suffered no fools. Uh, uh, If you did not perform, she would give you a chance, but she coached you up or coached you out. Uh, And so she was competitive. She was uh, leaned into her power. She had no problem being assertive. But she also was incredibly valuing of relationships, incredibly focused on the whole, not the kind of, you know, just the parts. She was incredibly aware of the 
impact on the whole system and the 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 need for collaboration. And because of that, I she by far the best boss I ever had and a great role model. But I think it's because she integrated those energies. So I think what we need to recognize is that 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 is what an ideal leader is. It's almost like a parent. Anyone who's a parent, what's the ideal parent? The ideal parent is not the parent who only cares about loving you unconditionally and collaborating with you and you know making you feel good. Uh, it's or nor is it the parent that has only limits and is harsh on you and pushes you to do your best. The ideal parent can do both of those things. Mm-hmm. And one way to think about this, that's the feminine and the masculine energy, again, associated with men and women, but it's really about the masculine and feminine energy. It's not about men and women. So once we recognize that's the ideal leader, then I think we begin to realize we need to have that. And the sad thing is our whole society has been dominated by mostly this other paradigm and the consequences of it in terms of sustainability, in terms of equality, in terms of sustaining uh, a, a healthy societies have, I believe, been tragic. And I don't blame men for that. Men are not toxic. But the patriarchal energy, when it is the only game that you play, is toxic. And it's toxic to societies. And, you know, I'll, I'll rant for just a moment. When the Ukrainian, when the war started in Ukraine, I found myself incredibly angry. And I'll tell you what I was angry about as a man. I was angry at men and the masculine energy because I felt everything that was happening in the world was about men needing power, being competitive, not seeing the value of collaboration or relationship, and that the whole world was suffering from. Uh, and abuse of the masculine energy. And, and it made me wish more women were running the world because I do think, this is not to glorify women, but I do think it would be a different world if if we were more matriarchal uh, 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 or maybe we should say the balance of those energies, the harmony of them. It's interesting you use the term power there because it's quite interesting with a lot of the female leaders I talk to um, and I'm seeing this change, which is wonderful, but so many female leaders um, reject the notion of power or ambition. And, and we know that there's stories attached to that, which is why people reject it. But I think one of the interviews I did, um, the wonderful leader called Sally Bruce, she really called out that, you know, as a leader, you have a power to do something, not power over people. It's power to do something and to make a change. And so, you know, I just want to think about that. How do you think leaders can best prepare themselves to kind of intentionally show up as that best version of leader they can be? Because you can't just do it by accident, I don't believe. No, you can't. And I think it's very, very early in your career, two things are very important. One is, if possible, work for people who will teach you something really profound about leadership. I often think, would I have been the person that I am right now if I hadn't worked for Trudy Sop as the first leader I had? And there's some research that suggests, Melissa, that the first supervisor we have when we begin our eventual career is one of the strongest predictors of our ultimate success. Wow. So first, surround yourself and be mentored and learn from leaders who you see as incredibly effective. But you talked about power. 
One of, I think, the most fascinating pieces of research around senior leadership is it turns out that the most effective senior leaders have high needs for power and low needs for affiliation, which means low needs to be liked. Yes. Don't confuse that with being likable. Low needs to be liked, low need for affiliation, high need for power. But that research does not define power the way we normally define it. We define power as ego, you know, power over. The research defines power as the need for things to be done right and well. In other words, for the organization to be at its best and for people to be at their best and highest potential. So it turns out that when power is leaned into in that way, and again, Trudy Sop was a great example. She wasn't into wielding power for ego's sake, but she it was very important for her to use power to make sure things were done right, that we fulfilled our highest potential as individuals and as an organization. And that's the proper use of power. In that, and, and this other piece about if I have too high a need for affiliation, the need to be liked, I will not be willing to make the tough decisions. Again, not to be confused with being like a bull. Very different. And again, we go back to parenting, which to me is the ultimate, like, if you want to look for a paradigm around effective leadership, look at effective parenting. Well, who's the most effective parent? The person who, uh, you know, you know, who can be tough, but also incredibly caring and fair, who is able, again, to balance those energies, because it's more important that my child become a happy, effective human being than that they like me every day. Mm. But on the other hand, I also have to make sure that they have high self-esteem and that they grow as individuals. And that's kind of what effective senior leadership looks like when it's sustainable. Let me take a brief pause from listening to the podcast for a minute, just to check in and see if the conversation's inspiring any new thoughts or any new reflections for you. I hear so often from people in our audience, largely successful and senior professional women, how much they are craving some inspiration into their lives. I would just love to share with you, if you're looking for some, then come and sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. You can find a link in the show notes at the end of the show. Now let's get back to the podcast. So um, any tips on what a leader should do and should think about um, as they sort of, you know, reflect on their leadership? What do you ask people to consider? Well, uh, a a couple of things. First. be clear on the kind of leader you want to be. A great way to do that is to write your retirement speech. Mm-hmm. And in preparation for your retirement speech, think of all the leaders you've had in your life and what were the qualities that they had that inspired you, made you come in and do your best, et cetera. And then authentically create a retirement speech that that you can live into. So I, on my wildest dreams at my retirement party, what would I want them to say about me? It's a good idea to read it once in a while. But then you got to, so that's get clear. But the second thing is you got to face the facts. How does my current leadership show up against my desired leadership? That requires us to consistently ask for feedback, to consistently be curious when that feedback does not align with 
what we want or our sense of self. So instead of saying, I, I train people, instead of saying, thank you, Melissa, but thank you, tell me more, lean into your curiosity. What can I learn from this feedback? And some research suggests that for most of us, early in our career, we're given critical feedback that is core to what would make us more effective. And the people who get, um, get plateau in their career don't follow, if you will, and listen to that early feedback. And those who are effective are more likely to, uh, who are listening to that feedback and work. And I'll give an example in my, when I worked for Trudy Sop in my first performance appraisal, she said, John, you know, you're, you're a great communicator. You're a great storyteller. The clients love you. You build trust. But let me tell you what your, your colleagues say about you. You're a great guy, but you're selfish. Mm. It's all about you. And John, you can be good and be selfish, but you can't be great. Mm. So you've got to work on that. And uh, I was kind, I was compassionate, but I was too self-focused. And the research says early in your career, you're going to get a feedback like that. And it's never too late to take it, Melissa. So you could be 40 right now or 50 and say, ah, John is right. I've gotten that feedback for like years. And, and you know, I was thinking of a, a, a female leader I work with who had uh, 20,000 people who reported to her and I was coaching her. And for years, she had gotten the feedback that you're tough, you're smart, you're strategic. But you just don't make people feel good around you. You just don't make people feel valued. You're too hard. And she resisted that feedback for years. And when, when she finally just opened up to it, it was actually because she was in the defense industry and she was at a banquet and met a female four-star general who was tough as nails and smart and hard, but she was loving and building relationships. And I'll just call her Josephine. That wasn't her name. Yeah. Josephine said, wow, she does both of those things. Maybe that feedback, maybe I could do that. And so part of it, Melissa, too, is have a growth mindset about yourself. Because often we think, oh, that's just who I am. And when this leader said, maybe, maybe if I get curious about that feedback and developing that other side of me, we all have a more developed side. By the way, not taking credit. Uh, she wound up then becoming the COO of the first female CEO uh, in her industry and had 130,000 people under her direction. Wow. I'd like to think it wasn't because of me, but it was because she finally opened up to be curious about the ways in which she needed to become more effective. I love that you said that because I, I spend a lot of time, um, you know, encouraging people to open up to that feedback and listen to that feedback and I think we can learn a lot from athletes in that regard you know athletes know that the only way to improve is actually to get feedback and it's not always easy to hear um, and you can choose what to listen to but if like the executive you're talking about if you're getting that consistent message then there's something in there. So I love that you said that. Um, I had an interesting conversation the other day, um, which will move us on to a sort of different subject. But you know, I was talking to someone about the interviews that I do and um, and to a male. And um, he said, so what do you talk about? And I said, well, I talk about women in leadership. You know, I want to inspire women to get more intentional in their career. And I want to see more female CEOs. Mm -hmm. And his response to me was, well, okay, but what about some more contemporary issues like the challenge of people not coming into work right now? 
so many things to unpack in that one comment, but can I just ask, um, you know, your perspective on on the couple of things that that conversation flags? Yeah, so well, let's start with the the elephant that walks across when we do that. And let's give the person the benefit of the doubt. Let's hope they were more saying, you know, hey, there's lots of things on people's mind besides uh, feminine leadership. Uh, but I'll go back to my previous comments. Uh, you know, I think if you look at the pickle we're in in the world right now and, you know, just take environment as an example and our inability still to have uh, uh, global cooperation. And so much of that has been driven by this masculine patriarchal paradigm. Again, I, it's not exclusive to men. So so even if that person doesn't think we need more female leaders or CEOs, we certainly need the qualities of the feminine to be much more represented in our governance and in our leadership than we have now. It's hard to argue with that, that we need that harmonic balance. So the first thing I would say is, well, look, the best way to get more feminine uh, energy into our society and organization is to have more women uh, in places of leadership. And again, these are overlapping bell curves, you know, that we all have all these qualities. And 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 obviously there are uh, issues today like coming back into the workplace, right? It's a, I have I have some organizations that have said we're a in-person culture and everyone's got to get their, you know, their bottom back on the on the the desk chair. I've had others who have tried to do it and failed. Uh, I've had others who have said, no, we're really going to lean into hybrid and virtual. And, uh, you know, I think that two thoughts come to mind. The first is that, you know, in Canada, we talk about you've got to look where the puck is going. And I believe people want flexibility and they want to integrate their lives. And they don't really want work-life balance. They want integration. They don't want to have these two worlds. And part of that is being able to be at home or be at work or at the office or not at the office. And that's where the puck is going. You can resist it if you want to. You know, on the other hand, there is, uh, you know, as a corporate culture guy, there are things that happen in person. When we meet informally around the coffee or in the lobby or between meetings, there is something that happens in person, especially new people as they develop relationships. and. I would say to women leaders or, or who want to, to move up in the organization, be careful about being too hybrid or too virtual because you will never build the same kind of relationships as you will in person. I would say that to men and women, but since many women may have a, the natural bias disadvantage to begin with, uh, you be careful about the hybrid uh, or, or virtual as your prime way of being. It's a balance for all of us. But again, I'll go back to this core idea. We need the feminine in our leadership. And uh, the best way to get that is to have more women in places of leadership, as well as for men and women to, again, move to that balance of the energies, because they're all valuable. Mm. Um, I, when I hear it, you know, often I'll sit in rooms with, um, you know, peers, so groups of CEOs, and um, and I. I heard over the last sort of probably 12 to 18 months or so language that was very forceful about needing people to come back into the office. So does that, I mean, to me that doesn't seem like 
the answer. Like that seems like we're not hearing the opportunity that COVID perhaps presented um, or accelerated, I think, accelerated more than anything else. Does that resonate with you when I say that? Yeah, I think uh, it's something that you hinted at earlier, uh, which is leadership generally is moving towards a more collaborative paradigm. People want to say, especially the younger generation, they expect that what I say is everyone wants to say the younger generations expect to say, right? Um, They grew up with a different kind of parenting style. They grew up in a different relationship with their teachers. They grew up in a different relationship through the technology where you could speak to people across hierarchies. So first of all, you're swimming upstream if you're still working from a highly hierarchical model. And it seems to me that the, the, the decisions around being hybrid or virtual or you know how far we go in that direction can also be made collaboratively. Uh, and I think those organizations, that, I'm working with a think tank in Washington, D.C. that where the CEO really wanted to get people more back in the office, uh, but people had really enjoyed being at home but I think did it in a very collaborative way of people dialoguing about the pros and cons and what what might work and what are the goals we're trying to accomplish. And I, I think pretty much got to where he wanted to get by engaging people in authentic dialogue. And, you know, I, my experience, Melissa, generally is that if people feel they've had their people don't have to get their way, but they have to feel they've had their say. Yes. So. Even if you want people to get back into the office by leading an authentic process that they feel they've had a say, they're more likely to come back into the office in the way you want them to. Okay. John, can you tell me about Blueprint? Sure. So Blueprint is six years old. It's affiliated with the University of British Columbia. We have a a very simple mission, simple but huge which is to enhance the integrity and well-being of men and boys for the benefit of families, communities, and the world. And it really began um, as a think-and-do tank dedicated to uh, both helping men and boys, especially in Canada and North America, but globally become more well and do more good. And it really came, uh, Melissa, from two, well, maybe three truths. The first truth is that men have and and continue to disproportionately contribute to suffering. We are more likely to do violence, more likely to desert and leave our families, more likely to uh, to uh, uh, sexually assault or you know abuse people. You know we all know that men are more likely to contribute to suffering. It's just a fact. What's less talked about is men are also suffering in a whole lot of ways more likely to die by suicide, more likely to be addicted, more likely to have poor relationships with their families, less likely to graduate now from high school or university, more likely to be the victims of violence as well as the perpetrators of violence. So on almost every metric, boys and and men are falling behind and doing less good than we're capable of. So we really felt like it was time to really change the conversation about men and boys. First of all, to focus on it in a new way. Let's focus on the well-being of men and boys because it's going to be good for the society because hurt people hurt people. And second, let's catalyze 
men to be their best selves and beginning at a very young age. So we both conduct research like we did on the workplace post Me Too and uh, fatherhood during COVID uh, to uh, creating programs for firefighters and military and athletes and business people, especially men that take them on a holistic journey to think about who they are and how they can be even more effective to just trying to change the conversation about men and masculinity. Let me say, we don't think men are toxic. Yes. But we think the way men and boys have been socialized in many societies and the narrow band in which men and boys have allowed themselves to operate is in fact toxic, both to the health and well-being of men and boys and to the communities that we're a part of. So we like to say we're about helping men and boys be better on every team they're on, including their own. And um, I understand there's kind of a three-step framework that I think is applicable to everybody, but that you ask um, people to consider in Blueprint. Can you share that with us, John? Yeah, in our program, young athletes and young boys uh, is uh, one of our key focus. And we have a very simple model that I think is uh, is as appropriate in the workplace. A very simple model. You can see it came from athletics because of the language that we use. The first is get clear, which is get clear on the kind of person that you want to be and how you want to show up on every team of your life. What kind of player do I want to be? What kind of a uh, person in a relationship with someone in a romantic relationship do I want to be? What kind of a friend do I want to be? What kind of a leader do I want to be? What kind of a teammate, et cetera? Get clear. As uh, as uh, the old saying goes, if you don't know where you're going, there's a pretty good chance you'll end up somewhere else. And many of the young athletes and even senior leaders say, you know, no one has ever asked me in this way to get crystal clear about who I want to be. The second thing is we call face the facts, which is it's great to have aspiration, but most of us aren't living up to our aspirations day to day. So face the facts. Face the facts, first of all, in a big way. I say I want to be an honest person, an empowering leader. I want to be uh, a person who challenges others when they're not being their best. Well, face the facts. Is that really true of me most of the time? Look for feedback. Ask other people. This is who I want to be. Where am I strong? Where do I need to do better? And then moment to moment, face the facts. In a meeting, I say I want to be an empowering leader. Was I empowering in that meeting? I say I want to be a respectful man or boy. Well, on that date last night, was I respectful? Face the facts. And then finally, make a play, which is we can't do anything about the the game we played last week, the date I went on, the leadership meeting or the performance appraisal I did last week or even five minutes ago, can't do anything about what's going to happen next week. But in this moment right now, I can make a different play and incrementally move towards the person, the leader that I want to be. And I believe, as you said, it parallels the athletic journey. What does it mean to be a great tennis player, a great rugby player. Uh, how am I doing now? Be open to feedback. Be curious. Find other great players and watch their videos. Find other leaders and observe them. You know, Find other parents who are amazing and see what they do. Face the facts. And finally, try some things. Try to be different. You'll fail a lot, but that's how you grow. So that's the backbone. Uh, and even our programs with firefighters that if folks are now even using in, Aust not even in Australia, like even the Australians, but like 
All the way very far away from us uh, uh, are being used there are based in loose on that kind of very simple model. Mm -hmm. And one of the things we ask young men and boys to get clear about is what society has told them about what it means to be a man. Mm -hmm. Be strong, be stoic, don't show weakness, don't ask for help, which is the core of male poor well-being. And so that stoicism and that singular focus uh, is part of what we try to also help men see the way that limits them. And maybe you can play on the entire playing field of, of human possibility and not be limited by what society has told you a man or a boy is supposed to be. Uh, John, I could keep our conversation going for a long time, but I'm going to move to the last question that I ask of everybody, which is from your perspective, what does brave feminine leadership look like and do you think it needs to change? Well, first, what is brave leadership, period? Because then we'll talk about how that might be unique in, in the feminine. So what is brave leadership? First of all, brave leadership is leadership that is courageous that is willing to take the heat to do what is right or what is effective, even if it isn't popular. So brave leadership means the courage to not always be popular, to do what's right over what's expedient uh, and, 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 and to do what is in the long-term interest of an organization or an individual, not just the short-term interest. The second thing that brave leadership is, brave leadership is authentic leadership. Brave leadership is the willingness to be your most authentic self. I think all of us are the best leaders when we bravely be ourselves. Uh, I remember years ago, Melissa, that there was, remember Tom Peters, he was a very popular speaker in the previous generation, he's still around, but uh, a magazine, Incentive Magazine had, uh, had a cover story on the eight speakers most likely to become the next Tom Peters, ah. of which I was one of them. So then I was interviewed by like these people considering me to do this leadership series that Stephen Covey was doing. And it was like this global leadership thing. And they said, tell us about John Isaac. And I said, well, Incentive Magazine just said I'm one of the eight people most likely to become the next Tom Peters. And the guy who was pretty wise and, and also sarcastic said, well, there already is a Tom Peters. He said, tell me about John Izzo. Yeah. And it actually was very wise. Authentic leadership is knowing what you are most capable of being the best leader at and leaning into that strength. What is your bliss? And then I think finally, brave leadership is purposeful leadership. It's servant leadership. Ultimately, I be brave leadership is thinking about the good of the whole that is also cross-generational. Now, what is brave feminine leadership? Well, first of all, brave feminine leadership must be all of those three things. But I think also going back to that research about that as women leaders climb up the ladder, they often lead in this more masculine way. I wanna go back to my mentor, Trudy Sop. Brave feminine leadership is to be fully willing to embrace all the things that make fem feminine female leadership and women important, which is women, you know, Joseph Campbell said, women's are the givers of life. If you get to hang out with hunting and gathering tribes, as there are still in Australia, as I did in Africa, you'll see the women are the keepers of the culture. 
the keepers of relationship and the community. They kind of hold the whole thing together. Men, the men just go out and hunt, then they come back. So that holistic, relationship-oriented, good of the whole, that is so core to the matriarchal you know, instinct. Women must be brave to hold on to that while leaning into the willingness to be unpopular, to be assertive, to use power in the sense of the toughness that's there. And I think brave feminine leadership is like Trudy Sop to hold those tensions together, not to be afraid to do all the great things that make women so important in our society, the givers of life, and at the same time to lean into those more masculine qualities and bring them into harmony. That is, I think, what brave feminine leadership, and when it happens, it's magic. And I think we all want to follow it. I certainly did. John, thank you so much. And what uh, what wise and magical feedback from the interviewer at the time about there already is a Tom Peters, so uh, let's focus on being you. So thank you so much for being you and for joining our conversation. I know that the audience will really enjoy that. Thank you so much, John. It's been wonderful to have you with us. And thank you, Melissa. It was indeed a delicious conversation and I, I look forward to more and thanks for your good work. And that was the end of another podcast conversation. So thank you so much for listening to the episode today. I often hear from leaders who felt inspired by the conversations and are ready to put themselves first. And so I wanted to take a brief moment just to share how I've helped hundreds of women just like you become crystal clear on the exact steps they should be following right now to lead an intentional and sustainable life without second guessing themselves so that they can maximize their influence and impact. I've put some details into the show notes and there's a link there where you can find out some more about our signature Elevate and Influence program. While you're there, take the time to sign up for our Sunday Inspiration email series. Have a brilliant day.